Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Uh, so we're at the uh, fourth class of our structured study of the Eightfold Path, the fifth if you count the uh, introduction. Uh, David gave, gave an excellent class on the Sikha Sutta, the three trainings necessary for liberation from ignorance of Four Noble Truths. And those three trainings are trainings in heightened virtue, uh, heightened wisdom, heightened virtue, and heightened concentration. <coughs> Excuse me. So the first two factors of the Eightfold Path, right view and right intention, are the wisdom factors that we develop, again, through the Eightfold Path. Right speech, right action, and right livelihood are the uh, virtuous factors, and right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation are the concentration factors. Uh, again, the, Buddha, the reason why the Buddha emphasized this, uh, the training in this way, and again, David's uh, teaching on it was really excellent, uh, is be, he's pointing to that there is something that we actually have to do beyond just faith or belief or just meditate. Just goes like we, uh, we're talking with Matteo earlier. He's talking about the uh, how brutal it was for him to go to Vipassana retreats, and I I would use the same characterization. Um, pardon me. No, I thought someone said something. So when I finally discovered. Um, the actual Eightfold Path, and it's interesting that I spent many, many years in modern Buddhism with studying with some of the more famous teachers. Um, I never, ever heard anybody teach me the Eightfold Path or Four Noble Truths. They were somewhat, they were mentioned occasionally, uh, but I was never taught a path to liberation. But it's what the Buddha taught, and it's the only path he taught, and he taught it in this way, that we're here to develop Heightened wisdom. We're here to develop a heightened virtue. We're here to develop heightened concentration, meaning more than the average human being. And again, this isn't an elitist training. It's just to say that this is a training that lifts us above human entanglements. And it begins in jhana meditation. We establish that seclusion on our cushion. And then through that secluded mind, off our cushion, we're able to develop this path as the Buddha describes here. Excuse me. So, like the Sakavabhanga Sutta, the Bhagavabhanga Sutta, the Sakavabhanga Sutta is the analysis of Four Noble Truths. We're getting to that in two classes. This is the Bhagavabhanga. Uh, Vibhanga can loosely be translated as an exposition or a teaching. Uh, so this is the, the teaching on or the analysis of the Eightfold Path. And the Buddha mentions the Eightfold Path in quite a few other suttas, but never in the detail given here. And why is that? Because the, the Buddha is laying the foundation for all of us to practice. And so he taught this, and other people then taught it in his Sangha, just like we're doing 2,600 years ago. The Buddha isn't sitting in front of you anymore. It's the grand, high, exalted mystic ruler that's sitting in front of you. A, a, a Dhamma teacher is still using the same teaching methods and the same words that were used 2,600 years ago. It's the same path. So, this is the, the Magavabhanga Sutta, the analysis of the Eightfold Path, uh, and it's from the Samyeda Nikaya. 
I have heard that at one time the Buddha was staying in Savati at Jita's Grove, Anathapindika's monastery. There he addressed those assembled. Friends, I will now give you a detailed analysis of the Noble Eightfold Path. Listen mindfully. This is the Noble Eightfold Path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation. So again, the Buddha didn't just say, that's what it is, go figure it out. He taught us what we need to do. The Buddha never left anything up for our speculation or imagination because he knew how dangerous that would be, that we would imagine anything, but it wouldn't be Dhamma-related. And the Buddha then teaches us exactly what is right view. While I'm reading this, ask yourself if you don't think you can actually develop what we're teaching here, and then, then please bring it up in our discussion. And what is right view? Right view is knowledge with regard to stress. Right view is knowledge with regards to the origination of stress. Right view is knowledge with regards to the cessation of stress. And right, way, right view is knowledge with regards to the way of practice leading to the cessation of stress. So the Buddha first describes the problem, explains to us how it manifests in our lives, and then exactly what to do with it. And the word knowledge here means an experiential knowledge. Anybody could pick up a Merriam-Webster and, and describe what stress is. We can give a definition of it. But that doesn't do us any good because that's just a surface. And that's something that we're attaching ourselves to, our notion of stress. What the Buddha is teaching is a profound understanding of stress so that we can understand the nature of human life. And we touched on uh, earlier today in our teacher's training the, 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 what's going on in Ukraine and how to look at that from a Dhammic point of view. And, ah, oh, Mateo's back. Let's let Mateo get into the room. Welcome back, Mateo. Glad you joined us. We're just talking about right view. I'm going to, and I'm going to just read them again, just because uh, Mateo just joined us. And the Buddha's words, and what is right view? Knowledge with regards to stress, knowledge with regards to the origination of stress, knowledge with regards to the cessation of stress, and knowledge with regards to the way of practice leading to the cessation of stress. So the knowledge that the Buddha is talking about here, again, is not an intellectual knowledge. Anybody can understand the word stress, but it's an experiential knowledge of how we create stress in our lives. Remember the Salata Sutta, because of ignorance of Four Noble Truths, that has us reacting to normal stresses, things that simply occur as a consequence of having a human life. And again, the Buddha taught us, don't take it serious personally, because it's simply a consequence of living in the world. Again, not to get too deep into it, including wars. And, and just to mention that, in my lifetime, there's never been a day in my 66 plus years that there hasn't been some type of... of uh, human death causing conflict in the world. It's always been here. And so what's the proper response is understanding it. I can't end it. None of you can end it, but we can end conflict in our own minds. And so we're not contributing to the conflict in the world. And this is the only thing that the Buddha taught. He's, sometimes he's called the Prince of Peace, even though they, they usually give that to, to another well-known uh, spiritual teacher. But he wasn't focused on peace in the world because he knew you couldn't do that. You couldn't force peace on people. 
but he knew that we could, te we could teach peace to ourselves by understanding through knowledge the cause of discontent and conflict within our own minds. So the only thing that we can do, and it's the greatest contribution we can give to the world, is to end conflict in our own mind. And how do we do it? Through the Eightfold Path, through having a well-concentrated mind and a framework for recognizing what we, should, what we should be looking at so that we can recognize and abandon our own contributions to stress and suffering. The Buddha continues, this friend's is right view. And what is right intention? Right intention is being mindful of the intention to recognize and abandon wrong views. Excuse me. A brilliant teaching, isn't it? Following right view. If we're to develop right view, we have to first acknowledge that I'm in wrong view. I used to have a teacher that would say, if you want to go to Los Angeles, but you're in New York, but you really believe you're in Chicago, you can't get there. What he was saying, his name was Arnold Patton, a good guy. What he was saying was, you first have to put yourself where you are. You have to be where you're living your life. The Buddha did that brilliantly by using jhana meditation. Jhana meditation is the skill and the method used to unite our mind and our body so that we can do just this, so that we can recognize and abandon wrong views. We have to be able to see it. We have to recognize our part in it and simply abandon it. Not get into analysis of it, not try to figure out why am I thinking this way? Why do I hate a guy named Putin? Look at it, understand it's occurring with you, and simply abandon it, as it's simply not skillful. The Buddha continues, being mindful of the intention to remain free from ill will. The second factor of right intention is being mindful of the intention to remain free from ill will. So how does that manifest for us today, right here? I'm trying to think of the day. March 12th, 2022. What's going on? For most of us, there's a war going on. And for most of us to recognize the war, we're going to go to blame. Who's to blame? Obviously, well, I don't think it, I think it's much deeper than this, but obviously it's one man. And it's right to hate this guy. Wrong. That's ill will. So what do we do with it? What can we do? How do we deal with, with maniacs in the world doing these horrible things? What we have to do is step back one sentence, abandon the wrong view. Because the wrong view, if I'm hating a human being, an awakened human being told me, don't do it. It's hurtful to me. And it doesn't solve anything, does it? So what does that mean? What do I, how do I apply this? Not, not being full of ill will for a man killing millions of people. Because I understand the nature of suffering in his own mind. I mentioned earlier in our teacher's class, when I think of Putin, I think of him this way, out of deep compassion and understanding and the, the recognizing the fortunate nature that I don't have a mind like he has. Can you imagine being stuck in that mind? Can you imagine that every thought you have is the second arrow? Now, of course, we then go to the destruction that he's wrought on people but where does it come from? From ignorance of four noble truths. The first noble truth, suffering occurs, including wars. We can't take it personal and we cannot hate over it or we've lost our mind. So we learn the difference between acceptance and approval. None of us approve what's going on there. 
but we can remain calm and at peace by accepting it as a consequence of having a human life. It's going on in the world because I'm living in the world. Think about that for a moment. If you weren't living in this world, you wouldn't be exposed to the, to the things of the world, would you? But you are. And you're here to understand it and end conflict in your own mind, not in the world. The Buddha continues. What is right intention? Right intention is being mindful of the intention to remain harmless to all beings. The Buddha just gave us a resolution in three sentences of all human conflict. Again, remember the context, developing the Eightfold Path. Do we have the intention to remain harmless to, to all beings? Do I? Or do I hold back a little bit for maniacs, for, for crazy people? Or maybe for the next door neighbor who's not a Republican or not a Democrat? Or maybe the person down the street who might not have the right skin or be of the right uh, sexual orientation or all the other things, all the other prejudices that we put on people? Or is my intention to remain harmless even though I might not understand another person? My intention today is as best as I can to remain harmless to all human beings. It was a hard thing for me to understand because I was grown up that, and, and it was, I was conditioned to think that it's okay to hate occasionally. And it's not. An awakened human being taught me that ill will hurts me and it does nothing to anybody else. Remaining harmless can only help me and it can only help other people. The Buddha concludes that by saying, this, friends, is right intention. Again, I ask you, do you, does anybody here think you can't develop that intention, the intention to remain harmless to all beings? And if you think that way, it's okay. Let's talk about it. And what is right speech? Again, are we confused about what right speech is? It's just this, abstaining from lying, abstaining from divisive speech. I hate that SOB over there in Russia. Abstaining from abusive speech. I hate that SOB in Russia. Abstaining from gossip. Do you know what that guy in Russia did? Abstaining from idle chatter. Do you know what that guy in Russia did today? This, friends, is right speech. Let's go back to that a little bit. Abstaining from lying. It's the easiest thing to do, isn't it? Well, not so easy. But we're never going to stop lying to other people. And every one of us has done it, except Becky. I don't think Becky did. I'm just kidding. Every one of us use, uses um, obfuscation, if you will, to preserve our view of self. And most of the time, it seems harmless, and it's not really hurting anybody. And usually it's not. If I can convince you that I'm the grand, high, exalted, mystic ruler, and you believe it, it's not really going to have a consequence on, on you. But it will on me, because now I have to live up to being the grand, high, exalted, mystic ruler to you, because I've told you I am. Where's the stress arising? In me. But there's also ill will in the fabrication of myself projecting it onto the world. Why? Because I'm putting something that's not true in another human being's mind that they now have to deal with. Instead of simply presenting yourself as a fully mature human being that is at peace with themselves. Again, abstaining from lying. Outward lying is important, but what are the lies that I'm telling myself? I realize that through jhana meditation and the framework of the Eightfold Path. 
abstaining from divisive speech is so important, but it's also divisive speech to think that there's something wrong with me in this moment. I'm creating a schism in my own mind. So right speech first begins on the gross level, how we relate to other people. But very quickly through jhana practice, we realize that we need to be applying this to ourselves, most importantly. Abstaining from gossip and abstaining from idle chatter. Idle chatter has made... Not, not, let me say this a different way. Other people's understanding of the need for human beings to engage in idle chatter has made billions and billions of dollars for a few people. I'm thinking about the the founders of Google, Facebook, Twitter, etc. They capitalize on the need for idle chatter. Look at what my cat just did. Oh, there's a million likes. What are these people doing? Why am I doing that? Why am I paying attention to someone's brand new cat? Why do I care? Why do I need the distraction in this moment? Because I can't stand facing myself and I can't stand facing the things of the world. An interesting thing has occurred since whenever I think it's day 17. Billions and billions of people use social media every day. It has exploded even more in the last 17 days. We love being distracted. And in that way, you could say Putin is our savior in this moment because he's giving us a great distraction. He's giving us just what we want. And again, I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about the collective human well, collective human consciousness. We're so enamored with destruction or with distraction that we'll use destruction for distraction. It's astonishing. You look at the news, especially cable news, and I've done this just to check throughout the day because I I just wanted to prove it to myself. They're not talking about anything else except the big distraction. Why? Because it puts butts in the seats in front of their TV. We're so enamored with it. This, friends, is right speech. And what is right action? Abstaining from taking life, abstaining from taking what is not freely given, abstaining from sexual misconduct. This, friends, is right action. That last is important. The Buddha never taught celibacy except for those that took vows and joined uh, the the Sangha. And he only did it not because there's there's something wrong with sex. There's something wrong with, with the way some people engage in sex. But sex should be treated just like everything else through the framework of the Eightfold Path. The only reason he had a... um, He taught celibacy within the Sangha is he understood that people that had left the world behind to focus just on the Dhamma would be distracted by sex. And so he just said, don't go there. Stop thinking about it. And some people were successful and some people weren't. Some people left the original Sangha with a Buddha in the world because of sex. But it wasn't because they were obsessed with it. They just weren't willing to let it go and they didn't fit in there. Some of them left that Sangha and continued with their practice as householders. And again, just to, just to qualify that because there's a great misunderstanding about that. But also the other two, abstaining from taking life. We need to talk about that and think about that. Of course, the Buddha is talking about we should never take another human being's life. Have we learned that yet? Have we, has, has the world learned that we should stop taking life? No. Why? Because we're still rooted in greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. But it doesn't mean that I shouldn't. And again, I, I'm, I'm fortunate. I've never felt the need to kill another human being. And I really mean that when I say I'm fortunate. Because I'm a human being and so are murderers. 
I don't know why I haven't killed another human being. I, I suppose it's my upbringing or maybe just my human, um, natural human compassion. I didn't lose my mind enough to justify that. But I've killed people in other ways and I'm almost bringing myself to tears just because I know that I've hurt people through gossip and idle chatter. That's a form of taking a life. When I diminish someone just to, just to build myself up, that's a form of taking life and it's lying. There's also another form of this, abstaining from taking what is not freely given goes along with that. And we have a word for that. We've even developed a, a, a construct for that in our society. It's taking people hostage. We've all heard it and likely we've done it at least to a little, a short extent. And probably every one of us has been in a relationship where it felt like the other person was trying to take us hostage. I know in my marriage, I was married once and divorced, when I look back on it, you know, I, I, it was easy to blame everything on my ex-wife. Again, I won't get into the story, but I was also responsible because I used my ex-wife's um, literally a mental disability to take her hostage. And again, it, 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 I came to grips with it many years after the marriage was over and I actually contacted Joanne and I explained it to her because when I realized that what I did myself, it was horrendous. Even Again, I, it was easy. If I told you the story, you'd say, oh, that woman was crazy. You had to get out of there. But that was her part. My part was I did just this. I didn't abstain from taking something that was not freely given, which was her love. And I manipulated in a way that, that I didn't realize I was doing. It was natural until I knew that I was taking something that she wasn't freely giving. And I also realized that I've done it with other people. We all do it. it it's, it it's, it's, a, it's conditioned within us to live in the world this way. But when we start practicing the Dhamma, we'll realize these subtle aspects that aren't necessarily harmful, but they take us away from what's occurring in this moment. Why would I need to manipulate you in this moment to take you, take you, uh, make you an emotional hostage to me? Because I'm, I feel inadequate, self-loathing. And it's the only reason we do these things. And again, that would lead to, again, the last thing, abstaining from sexual misconduct. We can't abstain from sexual misconduct if we still think we can take another human's life through emotional, by taking them as an emotional hostage. It leads directly to that last. Okay, that's, that's enough on that, though. And what is right livelihood? When I first came across this, my first thought was, wait a minute, isn't, doesn't right speech and right action cover right livelihood? And even after I read it, it took me a while to understand, why is the Buddha adding this? Why isn't it a sevenfold path? And I realized that even in my own life, otherwise good and honest men would, would cut corners when it was time to put food on the table for, for spouse and baby. And it seems reasonable, except we're taking what is not freely given, and it's and that relates to right livelihood. And what is right livelihood? Right livelihood abandons dishonest livelihood. Why did it take a human, an awakened human being, to tell me that? Why didn't I know that? And I was never a dishonest. I was a contractor for my for most of my life, and there's a lot of opportunity to take advantage of people in that business. That's why it's done. But I also know that most people, and I, I was part of many associations, most people in the construction business, like any business, are good and honest people. 
But when I used to go to, we used to go to these meetings once a month, and the discussion, and I didn't realize this again until I got out of it, the discussion was in very subtle ways, how to be a little bit dishonest, how to cut a few little corners, how to make just a few more bucks out of a, out of a deal, out of a job. That's what the Buddha's talking about. It's these subtle levels that we engage in that hurt us, and of course they hurt other people. Right livelihood, again, the Buddha finishes this. Two sentences, right livelihood is honest livelihood. These, the, the, the notion that I had to even consider that, maybe I should explain it this way. I always thought my, myself as an honest businessman, and, I, and I, I was. But at subtle levels, I was cutting corners as well. And it wasn't until I read this that I realized how important it was for me to do that, to take that one more step in business, and I was still in construction business, and be, be completely out of that game that it was okay to cut, cut a few corners and leave a couple nails out of a shingle. Why? Because it was hurting me as much as it might be hurting someone else. Because at night when I went to bed, I had an even deeper feeling of a job well done when I put all the nails in the shingles or all the nails in the bottom of the stud, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the ways that we might cut corners and think it's okay. This, friends, is right livelihood. And what is right effort? This is the one that we need to focus on because it guides our day-to-day practice. Right effort is developing the skillful desire, skillful desire, I want this, this is, this is, this is a, a good desire, Chanda is the poly word for it, the skillful desire and ongoing persistence to avoid unskillful qualities that are not present. So the Buddha doesn't deal immediately with what's going on. It's, it's, this also relates to the way to develop the Dhamma is to start recognizing what we're bringing to ourselves and in our mind in this moment and realize what is not present. How do we, what, are we, what are we judging that against? Excuse me. The Buddha taught us just a few sentences ago. What is not present? Is right, is right speech present in this moment or is it not present? Is right intention present or not present? Is right speech present? Right action present? Right livelihood? Right effort? Right mindfulness? Right concentration? Is that present in this moment or is it not present? What are we supposed to do with it? The Buddha just says, recognize that it's not present, that we're not in that space, in that quality of mind. Right effort is developing the skillful desire and ongoing persistence, you've got to keep it going, to abandon unskillful qualities that are present. So by recognizing what's not present, that I'm lying in this moment, I can now recognize, again, weighing it against the framework of the Eightfold Path, that's an unskillful quality that's, that's present right here and right now. What do I do with it? Well, right effort is, is effort developing the skillful desire and ongoing persistence to establish skillful qualities that are not yet present. And what are those skillful qualities? In general, not in general, they're, it, 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 particularly they're the factors of the Eightfold Path. And then in general, those skillful qualities are expanded in other suttas, such as the seven factors of awakening, that are of absolutely no value. The seven factors of awakening are useless until we start developing the Dhamma. And then the, the seven factors of awakening 
are skillful qualities that we can develop. Right effort is effort developing the skillful desire and ongoing persistence to end conflict and increase the full development of skillful qualities that are present. How do we end conflict? By simply recognizing it. What do we do when we recognize conflict? And where would we recognize it? By recognizing what is not present or recognizing what is present. Again, weighing it against the moral and ethical factors of the Eightfold Path. I know what I need to do in this moment. And if there's conflict there, what do I do? Well, I don't beat myself up. I don't pray. I don't try to visualize it away or wish it away. I don't hope for another life to get away from it. I abandon it. Can I abandon it? Yes. At least an awakened human being told me so. And Dhamma practice reaffirms that in ourselves. Tom, who was on earlier, and Matteo too, they, they both talked about doing just this. Meeting ourselves at that moment, recognizing it and abandoning it. And, the, and it's an ongoing process as the Buddha teaches us. And this, friends, is right effort. And what is right mindfulness? Again, think about how mindfulness is applied in the world. It's, it's really the, the modern religion of the world, mindfulness. The Buddha taught a very specific and practical mindfulness. Right mindfulness is remaining mindful of the body, free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful of abandoning greed and reaction to worldly events. How do we do it? John in meditation. Right mindfulness is remaining mindful of the body. I united my mind in my body. Free of distraction, I remain ardent, alert, and mindful of abandoning greed and reaction to worldly events. How would that manifest during meditation, during jhana meditation? Greed and reaction to worldly events. I sit in my cushion, I take a breath, and again, just to use it as an example, because it's a good example, and my first thought is that crazy man over in Russia. That's a thought attached to a feeling, isn't it? And what do I do with it? I abandon it. That is greed and reaction to worldly events. Or I might be thinking about the new, Lam new Lamborghini I'm getting tomorrow morning. What do I do with it when, I, when that thought comes into my meditation? I abandon it. That's it. I don't do anything else. I don't judge myself for having the thought, but I don't stay in the thought of hatred of another human being or the pleasure I'm going to get out of getting into that new Lamborghini. So I'm telling everybody right now, stay off the roads tomorrow because you don't know what's going to happen. Right mindfulness is remaining mindful of feelings arising and passing away, free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful of abandoning, mindful of abandoning greed and reaction to worldly events. So a feeling arises based on worldly events, and that could be anything, it doesn't have to be a major thing. What do I do with it? I recognize that I'm distracted by that feeling. Remember the four foundations of mindfulness. The Buddha is simply teaching that again here. Right mindfulness is remaining mindful of mental qualities, right? The, the first foundation of mindfulness is uniting the mind and the body. The second foundation is recognizing feelings arising and passing away. And now we're being mindful of thoughts arising and passing away. Right mindfulness is, is remaining mindful of mental qualities arising and passing away. Simply notice the ever-changing and permanent nature of our own thoughts. Arising and passing away free of distraction ardent, alert, and mindful of abandoning greed and reaction to worldly events. Anything that would come up in meditation that distracts me from my breath and my body, again, going back to just the first 
the beginning of right mindfulness, I simply abandon. I'm caught up in a thought. No matter how, I don't know why I'm using this word twice today, maybe because I didn't eat breakfast yet. No matter how delicious the thought might be or the feeling might be, we simply abandon it. It's hard to do with very delicious thoughts, with thoughts that we've had over and over again that seem to bring us pleasure, the thought of tomorrow, whatever I'm getting tomorrow, the next moment. Just to make the point, in Putin's mind, he will be happy when he destroys another country. Having one country is not enough for a man rooted in greed, aversion, and deluded thinking, is it? But it's the same greed, aversion, and deluded thinking that distracts all of us. It's just an extreme example of it, is all that it is. Right mindfulness is remaining mindful of the quality of mind arising and passing away, free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful of abandoning greed and reaction to worldly events. What is the Buddha referring to here? Does anybody know? Please please answer. I'll read it again and then give you the pop quiz. Right mindfulness is remaining mindful of the quality of mind arising and passing away, free of distraction, ardent, alert, and mindful of abandoning greed and reaction to worldly events. Anybody know what that is? The, the formal phrase for it? That's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. It's what I refer to at the end of meditation to be at peace with less than peaceful mind states. Notice the quality of your mind, be at peace with that mind. That's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So when you find your mind, your human mind, looking out on the world and finding out that the world is a flame, a flame with what? The fires of passion? We understand it. We don't lose our minds over it. We understand the arising and the passing away of our own feelings, our own thoughts, and our own reaction to worldly events. And so when we might see on, on TV... Uh, a, a, a mosque getting blown to bits with people inside of it. We understand it. And our reaction might be horror. It probably should be horror as human beings. But that horror doesn't lead to hate. The proper response to see a, a, a hospital being bombed or tomorrow's Lamborghini is to not go there. Recognize what's occurring in the world I just bought a car and I'm going to go pick it up tomorrow. So what? A crazy man is trying to blow up the country. Again, not to diminish the people's suffering, but so what? What can I do about it? The most important thing I can do is to end conflict in my mind. So in this moment, I'm not contrib contributing to the great conflict that's present in the world and has always been there. Nothing's John, different. Yes, David. That, that also sounds like awakening. And, well, it is. That fourth foundation of mindfulness is... Thank you, David. As the Buddha teaches it, teaches it, as we teach it, to be mindful of it so that you know you're awakening. You're developing full human maturity. As you notice, your fourth foundation of mindfulness, getting ever and ever deeper, ever more calm, that's, that's the path to liberation. That's reassuring ourselves. It's becoming rightly self-awakening, awakened by recognizing the Dhamma working within us. That's why we have these discussions during class too. So, excuse me. John? Yes, Becky, please. That's also not taking anything personally. Yes. Again, the fourth foundation of mindfulness is not taking anything, especially me personally. 
We're, we're a six-property person. That's all we are. That's all we can ever be as human beings. And again, what does that mean? What does that mean for a human life? What's the point of human life then? If it's not getting things or avoiding things, what is, what's the point? A calm and peaceful mind. What more could any human being ever want? Why do we, why do we go to the extremes? Putin insists that for him to have a calm and peaceful mind, he's got to destroy other people. It sounds crazy to us, doesn't it? But why is he doing it? Because of that. But why do we shade the truth at times? Why do we cut corners at work a little bit? For the same reason, because my mind is not resting in that fourth foundation of mindfulness. I'm reacting to the world in a personal way. And thank you, Becky, that was so important. And David, too, so important to point that out. This is awakening. There's nothing... Um, Oh, it started snowing. Good thing we canceled class. There's nothing um, to take on faith even about awakening. The Buddha describes it here and we understand it. It's not taking things personally. The Buddha continues, and what is right meditation? Again, when I, when I read this, this was the beginning of liberating my mind from all the other meditation practices that I had done up until that point. Because now it gave me a description of what I should be doing. What is right meditation? The Buddha's words, for one who has developed right meditation, their concentration increases. I never saw that in any of the meditation methods I taught, even though some of them were taught to deepen concentration. Their concentration increases and they withdraw from the need for sensual stimulation. It's so simple, but why is that so hard to do? Because it is through sensual stimulation that I continue eye-making. Sensual stimulation is anything that comes into my senses and gets a reaction. Whether it's a war, or tomorrow's car, or, or the, the fight I had with, with a co-worker, or anything else. Anything else that I'm taking personal. I withdraw from the need for sensual stimulation. It's the first factor of right meditation. I increase my concentration, I sit on my cushion, and I withdraw in this moment. When I take that breath, when I'm mindful of the entire breath, the in-breath and the out-breath, in that moment, I have, bit, I have withdrawn myself from the need for sensual stimulation. The Buddha continues, for one who has developed right meditation, their concentration increases, and they withdraw from unskillful mental qualities. The things that I'm holding in mind that are hurting me. Through the Eightfold Path, and I would say, from my own experience, this is the only path that I could, rent, I could recognize and abandon the, the mental qualities that I thought I so needed to maintain John Haspel in the world, to keep me going. What was I keeping going? I was keeping an idea, a fabrication of myself. And that idea almost killed me a few times. It manifested in me as alcoholism and drug addiction and other unskillful behaviors that literally t almost took my life a few times. And right now, it's taking people's lives all over the world. That same ignorance that caused me distress is what's occurring in the world today. For one who has developed right meditation, their concentration increases and they enter and remain in the first yana, the first level of meditative absorption, which is rapture or joyful engagement and pleasure in the Dhamma, born of that very withdrawal and accompanied by thought, and mindful evaluation. The first level of jhana, we've, we've gone through these a few times. This is the Buddha's method 
of using jhana meditation and recognizing what's occurring. That first jhana is simply taking a breath in the body and recognizing what I'm doing. I have withdrawn myself from the world. I have established seclusion. I take joyful engagement in that, in what I'm doing. Why? Where does that joyful engagement, um, how do I cultivate that? By understanding the nature of true refuge. I found something that I know is going to work for me, or at least I'm willing to give it a try. And I know a human being has taught this, which means I can do it. I'm a human being. And I have a well-focused and well-informed Sangha. That should give me joyful engagement with my meditation practice when I sit on my cushion. If you're not joyfully engaged in your practice, consider why you're not. Why are you, why are you practicing? Why are you engaged in this? And if it's always, if you're continuing to engage in meditation to fix a broken self or gain some kind of esoteric knowledge, fly around the universe, you're not doing jhana meditation, are you? You're doing something else, but it's not that. You're not engaging in withdrawal that is accompanied by thought and mindful evaluation. Mindful evaluation. I'm focused on what's occurring. I'm evaluating it in the context of the Dhamma. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> the Buddha continues. And again, these are all levels of deepening concentration. For one who has developed right meditation, their concentration increases and their directed thoughts and mindful evaluation quiets, the second level of jhana. And we've all experienced it. Notice the Buddha doesn't say their directed thoughts and mindful evaluation quiets for 18 minutes or one minute or three years. He simply says during meditation, when you take a breath, an in-breath and an out-breath, Directed thoughts and mindful evaluation quiets. Pay attention to it. What does it mean? It means in this moment, I no longer am directing my thoughts towards anything and I'm no longer judging my practice. I'm simply engaging in mindfulness of the breath in the body. And for most of us, that second jhana can be recognized and we'll usually quickly abandon it. And as we, as we continue our jhana practice day after day, twice a day, what happens is they enter and remain, well, I mean, I'm not, I didn't finish that part. They enter and remain in the second jhana, the second level of meditative absorption, absorption, which is joyful engagement and pleasure, skillful pleasure, it's okay. That pleasure is now born of deepening concentration. We should take pleasure in that. And I would say we should, we should take pleasure in this only. Because why wouldn't we? The reason why we have discontent and displeasure in the world, thinking that it's the world's fault or something wrong with me, is because I'm not concentrated in this moment. I'm simply not united. I simply have not united my mind and my body. And so I have to take this moment and moment after moment personally. But jhana meditation through concentration allows me to interrupt that process of one ignorant thought following another ignorant thought interrupt that process on my cushion so that I can also do it off my cushion as we talk about often. What we talk about in class are the results of this. Free from directed thought and mindful evaluation and confident within. The second jhana, the second level of meditation is recognizing that yes, my concentration is increasing and I'm developing inner confidence, inner poise. 
For one who has developed right meditation, their concentration increases, again, always increases, and their joyful engagement fades. It doesn't mean that as rapture fades, that, that now jhana meditation has become miserable or something I have to uh, have a, a stoic response to, or just just grit my teeth and get through it because I hate it. Thank you, Matteo, for talking about Vipassana earlier today. It means I'm no longer joyfully engaged. I'm simply established in a pleasant abiding. Going from that joyful engagement to a pleasant abiding is deepening concentration. And even using those words, I think you can infer a deepening calm going from joyful engagement to, 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 to simply letting that fade and being present with the quality of, our, of my mind, which leads to equanimity arises. When I let go of that joyful engagement, equanimity arises. What is equanimity? It's simply a balanced way, a conflict-free way, a conflict-free quality of our mind that persists through ever-deepening concentration that leads to the fourth foundation of mindfulness, but we're still at the third. Equanimity arises with mindfulness of, of pleasure of a mind united with the body. They enter the third jhana. Again, the Buddha is not teaching something, he's not teaching an advanced type of meditation. The Buddha never taught any other meditation but this, and he taught it for monks and nuns and lay people. A mind united with their body. As such, they enter the third jhana. The wise know this as equanimous and mindful, a pleasant abiding. Has anybody not experienced a pleasant abiding during their meditation? And, and Just please raise your hand or... or Open your mic. No, and that's, the th again, the emphasis I'm putting on this is to recognize your concentration is increasing and you're doing it right. And it's not that complicated, is it? Especially when we have the Buddhist teachings from 2,600 years ago. For one who has developed right meditation, their concentration increases and their mind rests in equanimity. Again, the fourth foundation of mindfulness. As Becky said, not taking things personally. Their mind rests in equanimity. Neither pleasure nor pain have a footing. Again, Becky, what does that mean? How do we achieve that? Through not taking things personally. Neither pleasure nor pain have a footing. They are not established in me in this moment. And again, the Buddha doesn't say pleasure and neither pleasure nor pain have a footing for 18 minutes or 18 days or 18 years. In this moment, during, constant, during meditation, neither pleasure nor pain have a footing. They're no longer established in this mind. And then the next moment, the dog barks or the phone rings or something happens and I'm back in the world. What do I do? I take a breath and I unite my mind and my body. And I maintain that equanimous mind. The Buddha continues, they enter and remain in the fourth jhana. Their mindfulness and equanimity is, is pure, free of wrong views. Imagine that, free of all wrong views. For every one of us, it's just into the in the next breath. And I'm not joking and I'm not misleading when I say that because if it's not present now it will be present in the next present breath their mindfulness and equanimous is pure free of wrong views rooted in ignorance of four noble truths again the Buddha takes us right back to the beginning where are we this monks is right meditation excuse me maybe we can talk about when we get to it if you feel you're engaging in right meditation as described. And then the Buddha says, or this is the end of the sutta, this is what the Buddha declared, 
Those gathered were gratified and delighted at his words. That's the end of the Magavabhanga Sutta. Uh, a remarkable sutta that, um, to me, and even more so today in what's going on in current events, how incredibly relevant these teachings from 2,600 years ago are. It really is remarkable. When you look at human history, um, and you look at maybe, just briefly, you go back to the Renaissance period where we were really enamored with how smart we were becoming and how that led to some great things through the Industrial Revolution. We've done great things. But we haven't learned a damn thing in 10 million years about how to live with each other. We're still killing each other. And there's people today that think, I mean, I grew up in the, in the generation that we had songs about it. We're on the verge of a, of a new a grand awakening. What was that song by the fifth dimension? I can't remember. Does anybody remember? The dawning of a new age of Aquarius. The dawning of the age of Aquarius. Yeah. And, we, and I grew up believing that that's just around the corner, this wonderful utopia. And then I kept, where the hell is it? Because it didn't seem to be present and it didn't seem to occur. Again, we, I grew up, we all grew up with war. I grew up with the Vietnam War and other wars. There's always been wars going. There's always been hate in the world. And I could never understand it. And so because I couldn't understand it, I always had to fall into hate. I hate the Germans. I hate the Japs. You know, I hate the Russians. I hate this. I hate that. And all it did was leave, leave me as a hateful mess confused by my own hatefulness because I didn't want to hate, but I thought I should. I thought there was some value in it. I thought I needed it to survive in the world. And it nearly destroyed me. And it, and it does destroy people. Look at look Look out of the world. The world is a flame. A flame with what? A flame with the fires of passion because people can't rest in the fourth in, in, in this in this experience of a common peaceful mind. Once we have that, though, we continue to deepen it through this eightfold path. And it truly liberates us from the things that are occurring in the world. And we can maintain a calm and peaceful mind while being fully mindful of what's occurring. So let's go around the room. Uh, uh, Jeff, I'll start with you. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, John. Good morning, everybody. Um, great teaching. Um, if I may, I'll remain silent this morning. Thank you, Jeff. I'm glad you joined us. Kevin Hart. Ah, we lost Andrew. Hey, John. Nothing to add. Thank you for everything for the class. Appreciate the contributions. Thank you, Kevin. I always like it when I leave the class speechless. It, it just proves it. Let me go to Scott, because I know Scott might have to have to back out. Scott, good morning. Ben, thank you for checking on the Senate this morning. Where's Scott? Oh, there he is. Scott. Oh, yeah, you're, um, yeah, you're still with us. Good morning, all. Sorry, I'm, I'm setting up the store now. Oh. Uh, so noble silence, but I'm listening in on everybody's comments. Great. Thank you, Scott. Uh, hold on a second. Jen, you can go. I'm going to hear you. The door just blew open. I'll be right back. Hi, everybody. Um, I, yeah, this, this, is is definitely valuable um, to be hearing at this time, um, and just to be reminded that um, dukkha occurs, 
and it occurs within us and we resolve it within us by practicing the Eightfold Path. Um, and when you look at each aspect of the Eightfold Path, sometimes it can seem redundant and that's on purpose because yeah. we need to be reminded to constantly be bringing the Dhamma into every single aspect of our lives because if we're not reminded of that, we will get distracted just by the nature of, of our minds. That's all I have today. Well said, Jen. Thank you, Teacher Jen. Teacher Ron, how are you? Out in the snow, huh? Out in the snow. Um, This is a a good substitute to actually keep on hand printed out. Because it's... Uh, it's so easy to be going around in your Dhamma practice and, and, and uh, you know, being engaged with the sevenfold path because you, you forgot the right effort. Yeah. I've done that, you know, too many times. Um, but, and also to, just to keep those, those definitions there to, to guide you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because they are so precise, um, and they are and they are such good guidance in in your daily life uh, that to to really um, understand right view that it is the simple uh, explanation is that it's just understanding uh, the four noble truths. Um, and and it, it goes through the whole thing. Um, it's it's just this is like um, it, it's a, a little reference sheet that you should have mm. with you all, at all times, mm. just to just to keep checking. Mm. Thank you. Great teaching, thank you, Rom. Brian, good morning. Morning, John. Morning, everybody. Um, yeah, this was uh, auspicious timing as well for me. I, I just finished a book on metaphors and how how humans just innately think and and speak in terms of metaphor Mm. and and just realizing that if i'm if i'm using metaphor to relate to something else that's not the thing in in and of itself i'm inherently hiding something that that is not it and just these subtle levels of speech around you know when you talk about lying or whatnot that obfuscation right that the 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 metaphors and the terms that we use to structure our thoughts and our language yeah i was just this just doubled down on on how how subtle and how deep that goes so thank you yeah thank you for that brian the 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 way we think always comes out in in our speech and that's how we maintain our ignorance too by these thought constructs that Yeah, or the, the thought metaphor that is at least one step removed from reality. In that metaphor, is our eye making. You know that, that yeah. that's why we do it. it was brilliant to, to to see that. What's the name of the book? Uh, it's called The Metaphors We Live By. It was written in 1979, um, but still extremely applicable. And they they did write an afterward in 2003, and they're just the. The amount of research that the, the gentleman that wrote that spawned was was quite impressive and really yeah it, 
it frames how we view the world and how we project out into it these things that aren't real. Yeah. Like, think about like there's a mountain with fog in front of it. Like I'm, I'm projecting onto the world an entity that, that, that I don't need to put that out there. It just is what it is. And it's that whole living, you know, as life occurs and not taking things personally. Like it was, it was fascinating to me to read that with a, a, a Dhamma background. Yeah. Yeah, you, you you see things that maybe even the author didn't intend, but are, are so. Yeah. What's the, what's the title again? Metaphors we live by. Metaphors we live by. Metaphors we live by. I, I, I can email it to you if you'd like. I think I, if I can't remember it, I'll, I'll send you an email. <laughs> Metaphors we live by. Uh, yeah, I want to I want to read that book. Um, yeah, it, it's just uh, there, there's a, there's there's books that I'm reading right now, and because of the way I see things. I am seeing them differently than the way the author might have intended, but there's so much, uh, they're, they're just so well written on particular subjects, and I'll just mention two books that are, I'm reading right now that I think are so important. One is Unsettled. Uh, I can't think of the gentleman's name. Uh, he's a, uh, an, really an eminent climate scientist that um, I believe is finally telling the truth about everything, and I won't get into it. And the other is a book called Stolen Focus by Johan Hari, Again, he's not a Buddhist practitioner, but he shows in there how we have systems built into our uh, the very fabric of our lives that are designed to distract us, to steal our focus. And it really is a brilliant book. So I would recommend them to anybody. And I believe you can get them from our friend Scott right there in the Frenchtown Bookshop. Uh, just to, now that I'm talking about it, there is a link online uh, now to to Scott's bookshop where you can buy my books through there, get them delivered to your house. But also Scott told me he's got uh, a catalog of over 7 million books. So if you want something, uh, please support our, our friend in local independent bookstores because I don't know how Scott's doing it, but I'm glad he is. Uh, David, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Uh, as Brian was describing this book and what he was experiencing essentially he's describing dependent origination yeah anatta and it, you know the buddha kind of figured that out 2600 years ago yeah so it just very interesting thanks brian that was good thank you david dominic good morning dominic I don't want to make make Dominic self self conscious, but everybody needs to look at that smile. <laughs> it's a it's a good yeah. world we're living in. Yeah, absolutely. thank you. Uh, well, you didn't leave me speechless because I always have questions, you know. Good. So, <laughs> but maybe now now not the time. But uh, oh, please, that now is the time. To yeah, it's gonna take too long. <laughs> Well then, we'll, we'll get a session together. But but I, you know, we're yeah, here to he, hear what you have to but, say. Uh, maybe just a thought uh, when you said that uh, when you were studying Buddhism, they didn't teach you really about the four noble truths and the uh, eightfold path. Uh, I was just reading a book by. Well, he is a Theravada monk, but he seems more enlightened than most of them. And he was describing the same thing as he was traveling around the world and visiting all the monasteries and sangha. Uh, no one was actually teaching these hmm. basic ideas, and they were uh, when when he asked them why not, 
they said like, well, this is kid stuff, you know, that's for five years old. We yeah. have way better techniques than that. Yeah. And he was always, no, no, you're missing the point. The, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path is everything you need, nothing else. What is the book? And who? Uh, I'm going to find it and then mail it to you. Please. Please again, I haven't I haven't come across anybody, and I you know I I I like to that is teaching the pure dharma. So, yeah. Yeah. Let, yeah. Let me know what it is. Okay, I will. Thank you, Dominic. And again, this, this this is a forum for any question you have, so you know don't don't feel like you can't ask it. But if you want to talk oh. to me later about it, we'll set up a session. Good, Doctor Kevin, how are you? I'm good time. Everybody, this is a, a really an essential teaching. You know, it's really you know an example of Buddha's open hand, like you, yeah. like we've read in other suttas. That um, you know everything is just laid bare, and it's just so simple and so essential. You know, it's just everything is right there. That's all we need. Yeah, and you're is. asking about uh, meditation, and. Um, it's just, you know, in meditation, I can see, you know, that anatta is constantly there, the five clinging aggregates constantly re-arising yep. and trying to take over my thoughts. So the ego is so strong. But with, you know, continued right effort and continuing the whole entire path, I have to just review the path and especially right effort and Hopefully, uh, as time goes on, I'll get deeper and deeper into it. That's all I have. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. I, let me ask you a question, if I could. How would you characterize... Put it, I don't think I've ever put it there. How would you characterize on a scale of 1 to 10, where 10 would be you know, an amorphous awakening point that your concentration has developed? Well, from starting at the beginning, oh, it's hard. It changes all the time. It's always yeah. constantly changing. There are some meditations where it's like, okay, I'm at 9.2, and then there are others where I'm at 0.1. You know, it just it has so much to do with, you know, what's going on in life, and uh, it just makes uh, eye-making so powerful. So... You just have to keep that in mind, yep. increase mindfulness, increase effort, increase concentration. That, that, that's what I was, I, I asked you the question for that because I knew what the answer would be, or at least I had a pretty good idea. That's right effort. You know, again, Kevin described some meditations are a 0.1 or some in a 9.2. And what did you do when it was a 0.1? You, you meditated later, later on, didn't you? Yeah. So the 0.1 doesn't stop us. You know, and the nine point two doesn't enamor us. It's just, it's just that nine point two is pretty exciting. Though. It is. It is. <laughs> yeah, and and then and so you meditate again, and the next one might be a zero point one. Yeah. And, and, yeah. yeah. Thank you for that, Kevin. Uh, Mary's got. I didn't see it, Mary. You have an emoji up, and I'm I, I'm not sure what it's. You have a hand up, Mary. How are you this morning? Hi. I don't think I have an emoji up, or at least I didn't mean to. No, it was, I, do, it's, I do have the world's cutest dog. I was going to say, who is that, Bodie? Come here, look at this, Bodes. <laughs> this is Harper. Yeah, there he comes. Um, who, who likes to distract me during meditation? So um, this is how I manage it. Um, See, Bodes. Uh, well, like Kevin said, <laughs> hello, Bodie. 
um, as Kevin said, this is really essential. Um, it's really fundamental. Um, it's um, really good to hear again, because as many people have said before, you hear it differently depending on where you're at in your meditation, in your concentration, in your life, and your responses to life. Um, so I don't think you can ever hear it enough. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that the comment that this might be for children or, or, or babies, because I've often thought for those who remember everything I needed to learn, I learned in kindergarten. Yeah. If you ever read any of those books, which were, which were really enlightening because they, they brought a simplification to all the complexity that we were bringing to our lives at that yeah. time. I think it might have been the 80s or the 90s, something like that. Yeah. Um, but the same is true, that really what, what, we, what we learn as children, you know, assuming that it, it's a, a positive environment and good intentions and all of that, gets distorted, yeah. um, whether... <coughs> 40 years ago or right now, it gets distorted by distraction and influences and marketing efforts and anything that tries to get into our behavioral mindset, right? They have behavioral scientists are sitting behind, um, right behind the master of Google and, and uh, Facebook and everything. And, and we just have to be smarter than that. And that's true yeah. with um, social media. And that's true with... Um, things that are going on in the world, and I have found my practice um, extremely beneficial um, in helping me do what I can for what's going on in the world, but also accepting what I can't. Um, remembering a, a, a phrase that my mother used to hang by the door, you know, uh, um, I forget it now, but anyway, the, the wisdom to know the difference, right? Yeah. To accept what you can't, what you can, what you can't change, etc. Yeah, the serenity I'm prayer. Watching it, but I think you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so I think this is really fundamental, and I think it also um, shines a light on what Brian was saying that you know we live in this sort of bumper sticker world, and going back to social media, you see all these positive phrases, and and they really don't mean anything. Um, they are projections of things. They might make someone feel better in that moment or whatever, but it all comes back to, you know, what is the true meaning of what's on your mind and what kind of peace and equanimity are you experiencing? And then you don't even feel you need to do those things like post a positive affirmation out there. Yeah. Um, but very good class, John. Always, uh, always enjoy this. Um, thank you very much. Thank you, Mary. Um, Mary is such a good example of of that uh, the right effort factor. Uh, you've been coming for years, and you've heard you've heard this suit that, um, you know, literally countless times. And you just said you get more out of it every time you hear it. You know, it is in the Dhamma part of the Buddha teaches that without repetition there is no Dhamma, and it's just that. You know, you could say it's a it's a gentle pounding against our own ignorance you know we have to keep coming up against it be willing to recognize it and abandon it as mary just said and that that is a beautiful dog bo do you want to see a good looking dog look ah oh, just kidding he's enamored with himself Bodie. i catch him looking in the mirror every now and then he's like that thank you mary mateo glad you joined us hi everybody um uh, so I, uh, about distraction, like uh, this remind me 
So every couple of weeks, I told to my mother, and uh, since they started the pandemic, you know, the conversation, the the pattern was there. Now the first couple of minutes was like, "Have you got vaccinated?" Yeah. And then I say, "No, you're gonna die." It was like for two years, it was like more or less like that. And then yeah. two weeks ago, start the the war. The Ukraine I was ready, and my mother didn't tell me anything. And then I, you know, if you put in a Buddhist background frame, you understand how how most of people that they, they don't know the Dharma, they get caught up in every distraction. We can say, okay, it seems now the virus disappeared from the main mainstream news. Now we have the, the, the war. And my mother was like an example of that. She told me that, after she told me that I'm going to die also because of the Ukraine war, but that's yeah. some other stuff. <laughs> well, so it's like, it, like that. No? It's like keeping like uh, chasing what is the last uh, uh, news feed. Also like in a very sick entertainment, no? Like you it look is. On top, you look, you look the war, do they die? Uh, how many city Russian take it? So it, it, in a very sick way, and it's very you need to watch out. No, you need to watch yeah. out yourself sometimes. You see, okay, that is like a distraction for my for my well being also. Not not yeah. of to is not to be cynical to people there and die, of course, but it's like also to be aware that you cannot do anything. Yeah, I, I, I thank you, Matteo. We should know what's going on in the world, but we shouldn't be taking that as entertainment, as Matteo just said. It's horrible, but we should know it. And you know, I would say, you just you know, if you if you're going to look at news, you know, keep it limited. The eightfold path is a limiting path. Limit your exposure to that stuff. Again, it's good to know, but you know, come back to your practice. Uh, you know, I, I, I was thinking this morning or last night. Um, and I got into it even during meditation that, you know, we this could be the third world war, it could be nuclear, and one could land on the top of my head. I hope my I hope my mind is calm and at peace when it happens, because that's all I can ever hope for. And I can understand the rest. I mean, you know, if I was in Ukraine and a Ukrainian, I would probably be taking up arms. I don't know. You know, I, you can speculate on these things and you never know until you're in it. But I think I would. You know, because I think I would feel that it's worth fighting for something like that. And I would be caught up. But I, I guess what I'm saying is I could understand, I could understand a mindful soldier. Uh, and since we're going to have war, I'd much rather have soldiers that are mindful than ones that aren't. And again, I'm thinking about it, during our prosecution of the Vietnam War, uh, there were, we, we often, well, we occasionally heard of atrocities by American troops. Uh, I did, one that was famous was the My Lai Massacre. And there's still a question whether it really happened. I think it did. But those are the kind of things that a, a mindful soldier, necessary because we're going to have wars, you know, let's accept that fact, would be much better if they were mindful of what they were doing and who they are. But, you know, I, there's a lot of Buddhists that would argue that thought, that if you're a Buddhist, you could never carry a gun. But again, I, I don't want to get into the debate. The point is that we have a practice to maintain a calm and peaceful mind even during times like this, even maybe on the verge of a third world war. And again, I'm not trying to scare anybody. Maybe not, maybe it is. But even even then, the Dhamma prevails. And a calm and peaceful mind is the most important thing to establish at any point in the human life. A calm and peaceful mind is life's reward. And when you think about it that way, we can't change things like that. So, but but I can develop this common peaceful mind through this simple eightfold path that anybody can practice. 
I, on, on days like this, days of, of conflict that are obvious, I just feel so fortunate that I found something like this. Because like I said, I grew up a hateful person. And I'm, I'm kind of using a, that word in an extreme way, but I, I, was, I, was, I carried a lot of justifiable hate that only hurt me. It only rotted my guts, you know, and it didn't do anything for anybody else. So I'm so glad that I've liberated myself from all that. And I'm so glad that I'm a part of a Sangha, and I really see myself that way, that supports me in keeping that going, because you're all doing that. Uh, I was saying at our teachers' meeting earlier today that uh, I had a pretty good single practice, you know, just by myself, uh, that was bringing a lot of calm and peace and understanding. But I understand the Dhamma so much deeper than I ever would by by teaching it and being able to share it with you. So, again, thank you all. Uh, and thank you all for joining on a day like this. These are times that distract people from the Dhamma, but we're all engaging in right effort here. So thank you so much. Does anybody else have anything they'd like to say before we finish with Meta? Okay. Really, thank you for just an outstanding class. Uh, it's remarkable what goes on in this Sangha, even to a grand, high, exalted mystic ruler like myself. All right, the Karaniya Metta Sutta, the Buddha's words on Metta. Uh, and again, we can relate this directly to what's occurring today. Take a moment to, to be focused of your, your breath in your body. Let that focus on your breath, your mindfulness of your breath. Unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on Metta from 2,600 years ago. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Stay safe and warm. Peace, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Stay safe, John. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.